Um, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 22. We are going to start a part one of two parts, God willing, as we work our way through this text and find where we've been. Um, we are going to continue our journey, and as we do so, I think we are going to discover uh, a special truth about God's faith or faith in God as it is realized in the life of our patriarch, Abraham. Today, as we look at the text and we discuss God's providence, that is God's divine leading through life and history in the lives of his children. God's providence is, is a theology or a doctrine that is often discussed in scripture. And oftentimes as we look at his providence, we, we think of it as aloof or as far off or as foreign to us. It, you know, that was for a different generation or a different group of people. You know, God's providence applies to somebody else. But today, as we walk through the connection, the book ends, and then uh, dive deeply into chapter 23 of Genesis, we're going to discover that God's providence and his um, dealings in our lives based on his promises for us um, are just as evident and just as focused and just as appropriate for each and every one of us as they are for as they were for Abraham. And so today, as we look at the, the text, the, the message is entitled The Providence of Promise. And of course, as a part one, we're going to see faith realized or faith actualized in the life of Abraham in a time of real, true sorrow. And so as we look at the text in the context, my prayer uh, today is that you and I will understand not just the axiom that we've walked through last week, uh, as I'll mention in a moment, but that we will understand that genuine faith stands on God's providence even when death brings temporal finality. As we look at the text today, we're going to find death staring us in the face. Death in the life of our patriarch. Death and sorrow in the midst of a promise that Abraham is clinging to. You know, the scripture reminds us that all will die one day. In fact, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. You see, should Jesus tarry at some point in time, we will all breathe our last, whether by God's providence after a long life, a deep breath in our favorite chair or in our sleep, whether in God's providence by accident in the sense of a human tragedy or a trial, whether it is a physical health uh, trial or a physical challenge that approaches us, we will one day enter into the presence of our almighty maker and creator. And today, as we look at the text, we're going to find that when faced with death, the death of a dear loved one, the death of a beloved spouse, Abraham's response was that of a man who realized faith. He understood what it meant to live by faith. We, we already journeyed with our God's man along the way. We've already seen that journey in Abraham's life as one of, of actualizing his faith. We've seen him believe God and it be accredited to him for righteousness. But here we have to ask and answer the question today. How does the text reveal that the temporal finality of physical death should give way to firm faith in God's providence? 
Abraham was faced with the death of his beloved wife, Sarah, his princess, as it were. Of course, that's what her name means. After uh, over 100 years of marriage, he lost his dearly beloved. His one flesh, as it were. And Abraham's faith in God did not waver in the midst of such sorrow and bereavement. And I, and I hope that as we walk through the text today, we will see the same truth. As we ask this question and we answer it today, we will note God's providence in the life of Abraham and God's providence in our lives as well when faced with certain and sudden and imminent separation from our loved ones or friends. As is always the custom at Crossroad, let's look at the text this morning. Now, I told you that this is a part one because we are going to bookend the story of Abraham. Abraham's story actually ends in chapter 25. Don't worry, I'm not preaching from chapter 22 to 25 today. Um, but I am going to introduce the end, as it were. And then we're going to work through chapter 23 in its context today. So would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, and let's look really at the last few verses in verses 20 to 24. And then I'd invite you to jump over a few more chapters to chapter 25, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. Uh, so th that's the portion I want to start with. And then as we walk through chapter 23, and I get into the first point, uh, or the second point, we'll read again chapter 23. So we're breaking it up a little bit this morning, differently than normal, uh, but follow along as, uh, as, as we walk through the text this morning. So Genesis chapter 22, after the soaring heights of Abraham's faith are tested uh, at Mount Moriah with the sacrifice of his one and only son Isaac, Abraham and Sarah pass the test. Isaac is the seed. He is the son of promise. He will be the one that will inherit all the blessings and promises of Abraham, who will be the progenitor of history, and he will be the one through whom the blessings of Abraham will come. Then we have this strange interruption, uh, strange from our perspective, but, but appropriate from the narrator's perspective. So God, the narrator, through the Holy Spirit to Moses, writes down sort of this, again, this family lineage in chapter 22, verse 20 through 24. This family lineage marks the beginning of the end of the story of Abraham. So let's read these verses and then jump to chapter 25. Here we go. Now it came to pass after these things, or shortly after this is another way to translate that, that it was told Abraham saying, indeed, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Huz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begat Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was uh, Rumah, also bore Teba, Gaham, Thahash, and Ma'aka. So I'm glad I don't have to call those names regularly. <laughs> Turn, if you will, to chapter 25. And Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lemumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abadiah, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. 
And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the son of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah, his wife, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lahairoi. May God add a blessing to the portion of the reading of his word. Let's ask God's grace on our message today. Gracious Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name we come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing we do find mercy and help in a time of need, because Jesus has himself is the mercy giver and the gracious God of, of the covenant he is the one who satisfied the wrath of God for all time and with his own blood entered into the heavenlies, sacrificing for our sins. And so this morning, as we bow in your name, we ask you to help us to understand the truths of your word from the narrative of Abraham as we bookend Abraham's life, as we see a real moment of sorrow and bereavement. We pray that you'd give us wisdom and grace to understand your truths from your word in a way that would be applicable to our lives today. We thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. As we introduce our topic this morning, let me remind you that the axiom that we learned last week, that is genuine faith withholds nothing and thus sacrifices everything for God, that axiom came straight from Genesis 22, which was the mountaintop Moriah sacrifice where Abraham believed God believed, as the author of Hebrews said, that God was able to raise his son Isaac, even from death, to resurrect him bodily in order to fulfill the promise because Abraham so believed that God would, would provide through Isaac all of the blessing that he had promised. So genuine faith withholds nothing and thus sacrifices everything for God. This is fully tested, though, in chapter 23. I want you to look with me um, in chapter 23 now. Let's go ahead and look at the text. Are we ready? Chapter 23 and verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I should bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. You're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land and the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them saying, if it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. 
Now, Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of the city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver from Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Now, as we look at this chapter, we can easily get distracted with the details of a purchased possession. And our mind's eye goes back to God's promise way back in chapter 11, when God first introduces to us this descendant of Terah. In fact, that Toledoth that began this last section of Toledoths, uh, these are the generations of Terah, introduced to us Abraham or Abram and Nahor. And the descendants of Terah uh, would then be given a, a call a call to come out and separate from the godless moon worshipers in Ur and to claim a land which would be their possession for generation upon generation. So God would send Abram and his wife Sarai out of Ur and they would begin this journey of genuine faith. And so as our mind's eye thinks about this possession that Abraham purchases, we realize other than the deed that he's just received from Gerar, from Abimelech, and planted a terabith tree at Beersheba, which we've already talked about, other than this sort of terabith tree and this well at Beersheba, Abram's not owned anything in this land. In fact, he doesn't even own that terabith tree. He just made a covenant with Abimelech that is, he could use that well, and that well was dug by his men, and that well, and thus, was uh, claimed by Abraham. But property and possession doesn't occur until now. Now, it's easy for us, again, to get wrapped up in the details as, you know, as we're analyzing the text and thinking about this possession and this thing that's taking place. But remember, the chapter, chapter 23, is actually showcasing a time of true, deep sorrow and bereavement in the life of Abraham. But this sorrow and bereavement is colored by the solidarity, the cohesion, the coming together of Abraham's genuine faith. So as last week we saw Abraham challenged with faith that was to withhold nothing but sacrifice everything, that was easy with, uh, when being faced with the, the joy of, of youth and watching his, 
his one and only son, Isaac, who would be the son of promise, uh, survive and grow and grow into maturity and claim his own. But now his life partner is taken from him. His wife of a hundred years plus. 62 years they've wandered from the borders of Canaan to the borders of Egypt. 62 years they've heard God who hears them and sees them, the Almighty, Yahweh, speak to them over and over and over again in chapter 12, in chapter 15, in chapter 18, in chapter 21, chapter 22, I will bless you. And in blessing you, I will make your descendants as great as the, the stars in the heavens and as many as the sand of the seashore. And indeed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. And I will give you all of the land that you can see as far as the north and the south and the east and the west from the Nile River to the Euphrates will be yours by possession, Abraham. And yet Abraham, after 62 years of journeying with his wife, with the ups and the downs of life, with the sorrows and the triumphs, the trials and the tragedies, Abraham owns nothing. His beloved is gone. He's sorrowing. Abraham passed this trial of faith when he was called to sacrifice Isaac. But he did not pass that test alone. He had his princess. He had Sarah with him to confirm God's promise and to continue their journey together. But today we will see the beginning of the ending of Abraham's story with his final test. In fact, I know I bookended it for you as we read 22 and 25. Guess who chapter 24 is about? Not Abraham. Guess what the rest of chapter 25 is about? Not about Abraham. And so the bookend of Abraham's life is really this moment. This moment when, when faced with the real circumstantial tragedy of life, real suffering, real sorrow, where the rubber meets the road, Abraham is being tested. Oh, I know you followed me, Abraham, for 62 years when you had your beloved bride. What are you going to do now that she's gone? Now, I hope you caught it. Sarai, Sarah, is 127 when she dies. We read chapter 25 already, verses 1 to 11. Abraham is 175 when he dies. When we did the math from chapter 21, we know that Sarah birthed Isaac at 90 years old. Abraham being 100. So at 127, at her death, Isaac is 37, okay? 27 plus 10, 90, difference between 90 and 100, right? 37, Isaac is 37. So I want, I want you to think about Abraham, of course, losing his beloved bride, but also Isaac losing his precious mom. This is real. This is life in a sin-cursed world. And in fact, up to this point in the book of Genesis, there has not been another narrative section that has dealt this in-depth with death. In fact, we go all the way back, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, after the curse in Genesis 3, when we see the narrative destruction between Cain and his brother Abel and the death that was uh, elicited because of sin and the fall. 
But in, except to that point, a few little mentions here. Lamech, you know, brags about murdering two people. We have the Genesis narrative in chapter 6 with uh, Noah finding grace or favor in the eyes of God and God destroying the whole earth by flood. But but the, the consumption uh, and, the, and the consummation of death that is passed upon all men for all have sinned hits us in the face in the life of our patriarch. I mean, he's the father of faith. I mean, we've just spent from chapter 12 to chapter 25 talking about one guy. This is a lot of, this is a lot of uh, highway, a lot of latitude, right? A lot of narrative has covered the life of Abraham and all of a sudden we're stopped short in our tracks and we're faced with death. How will Abraham respond to this final test? Will he finish well? Will he trust in the providence of God's promise? Or will he falter? Now, as we do a sweeping overview of the final chapters of Abraham's story today, we'll note that the temporal finality of physical death should give way to firm faith in God's providence. And in fact, in Abraham's life, it does. We, we know the answer to that question because we've just read the story. But put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Put yourself in Isaac's shoes this morning. As we'll see in Abraham's faith, a stand in his faith in the midst of temporal, the temporal finality of physical death. As such, we will note that faith is, uh, is only truly realized when one is willing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and thus fear no evil. As Abraham proved to us, we must see today that genuine faith stands on God's providence even when death brings temporal finality. So today, let's take a look at this truth highlighted by God's providence bookended. Now, we've read these portions already. So I'm summarizing the entire sections of these bookends as God's providence bookended. So this is our main point, the first main point this morning, God's providence bookended. And as we look at God's providence bookended, we're going to see the truth here. Now notice back at Genesis 22, verses 20 to 24, four short, short verses. We haven't heard about Nahor since Genesis chapter 11. So it's been a long time. Like this, this Toledoth, these are the generations of, we were kind of walking along the path. We were, we were noticing these genealogies. Um, we were trekking along thinking, okay, this is good. There's an Adam, there's Seth, there's Enoch, there's Noah, there's Shem, Ham, and Japheth, there's Shem, through Shem is Terah, cool. We now see the promise. We can see how the narrator is going, and then er, we've had all of this context, and we've stopped thinking about this lineage of the seed promised to Adam and the generational provision of God through God's providence. And of course, God's providence is linked to God's promise. And God's promise wasn't just friends to Abraham. Oh, it was expanded in Abraham. But God's promise was universal to all sons and daughters of Adam. There's this awful thing called sin. Anything that we think, say, or do that breaks God's law. This awful thing called sin interrupted the perfect fellowship between God and man in the perfect place called the Garden of Eden that God created. 
a perfect place of fellowship, a perfect place of love and comfort and care, a perfect place of provision. All of the trees were good to eat and bore fruit that was good to eat. All of the herbs of the field were available. There was even four rivers of water that even provided the beauties of the earth in, in rubies and jewels and, and uh, sapphires and emeralds and gold. God provided everything from the aesthetic to the necessary. And yet sin interrupted it. And sin always destroys. But God delivers. And that's the theme that we've seen through the book of Genesis thus far. God in his promises, in his, excuse me, God in his providence promises a universal crushing of the serpent's head through the bruising of the heel of the seed he would give to Eve. So God would provide a literal human child to Eve that she would claim a male child. The, the wording there in the Hebrew is very clear. This is a seed given to Eve, not a seed that comes from Eve. She took it literally in chapter 4 and assumed that Cain was the guy, and we know Cain wasn't the guy. And so as the journey goes along, we've been introduced with these, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of. The Toledoths, 11 of them in the first 11 chapters. And now, or excuse me, five of them, six of them in the first 11 chapters and the last five in chapters 12 to 50. So introducing this seed follows the generations of God's providence is connected to God's promise. God's promise is a universal promise of deliverance through a human over sin and death. But Abraham is faced with death. This is the first time Abraham has had to deal with the loss of someone he holds very dear and very special. And then we're interrupted again with this weird inclusion of Nahor. Who's this guy anyway? Well, back to chapter 11, we understand Nahor is a descendant of Terah. He is part of the Toledoth, the, the next section. He is Abraham's brother. All right? Uh, and so as we look at this chapter, what we find, the inclusion of Nahor's family lineage, uh, the brother of Abraham, was introduced to us in chapter 11, verse 26. It's the start of, though, this narrative epilogue to the end of Abraham's story. So the, with the question of Abraham's faithfulness and the identity of his heir now being settled, that was taken care of in chapter 22, right? The epilogue of Abraham's story now transitions to the Jacob narrative. We're gonna see Jacob showing up in chapter 25, 19 to 35, 29. It's as if there's one little chapter there about Isaac. We know Isaac is the seed but Isaac and Abraham's stories are sort of intermingled because Isaac is a product of Abraham and Sarah's believing God and then accrediting it to them for righteousness. The Jacob narrative takes up almost the rest of Genesis. And that's what begins at chapter 25, verse 19. So this union, though, this union, this Jacob narrative only happens when Isaac and Rebekah come together. And who is Rebecca, you might ask? Well, we just saw. And in fact, if you are tracking through these, Rebecca is the only female named in the list. And if you counted, there are 12 descendants listed outside of Rebecca 
of Nahor. By the way, how many sons would Jacob have? How many sons would Nahor have? Twelve. The narrator is pointing something out to you. Now, I could get really techy and into the weeds here of the technicalities here. But before taking up the, the next patriarchal account, the author includes a, an Ishmael genealogy, which we're going to talk about uh, in a couple of weeks. The Ishmael genealogy shows up in chapter 25, 12 to 18. Why is he talking about Ishmael again? Because Ishmael is not the son of the promise. Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac marries Rebekah, who is a daughter of Nahor, one of 12 male descendants under Nahor, the female. So what we see then is genuine faith must stand on God's providence, even in God's provision of a seed through an heir. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was empty, formless, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And you fast-track through chapter 1, 17 times God says, it is good, 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 it is good. And then we come to Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And so God makes man in his image and his likeness, and he makes them male and female. And then he opens up chapter 2 and he explains now, on day six, God starts the day by forming out of the dust here, Adam, Adam, and breathing into Adam, Adam, man, the breath of life. And Adam is tasked with this incredible job of naming the animals. And uh, as God brings these animals to Adam in this perfect place of perfect fellowship and perfect provision with a perfect temperature, with perfect everything, God himself is walking and talking with Adam, the first man, on day six. And Adam says, Elder, my name is John. Is that one of the text Whatever. Right? As he goes through, he starts naming the animals, but God brings them in pairs. He sees there's a male and a female, male and a female, male and a female, male and a female. And then enters this one statement it is not good. And so the realization hits him in the face. God wanted to teach him. That was object lesson number one for Adam on day six. So God causes, uh, as he anesthetizes Adam, causes a sleep to fall upon him. He pulls from close to his heart a portion of the rib of Adam and forms out of Adam uh, Eve or woman, who becomes bone to bone and flesh to flesh. And then God gives us this great quote Therefore shall man leave father and mother and be separated unto each other. They should cleave to one another, and the two shall become one flesh. So God would make a complete end on day six to the creation, not just of man, but of woman, his equal, his heir together of the grace of life, a necessary, purposeful connection because God would make male and female, and both in his image and likeness, and both essential to life. And so we've tracked this sort of patriarchal genealogy, right? The seed is a male seed. It comes from uh, God through Adam, through Seth, through Enoch, through uh, Noah, right? Through Shem, and now through Terah, 
to Abram, but Nahor, Abram's brother, gets a part in it too. And what does Nahor's lineage produce? Rebekah, Leah, and Rachel, right? Because Nahor's son, Laban, which is Rebekah's brother, is introduced to us in chapter 24. I'm jumping ahead to next week, okay? Laban is introduced to us in chapter 24. He dialogues with Abraham's servant who makes a pact with Abraham in chapter 24 that he would take a wife from his own heritage. And so Laban, who kind of uh, no doubt plants the seeds of scheming in his mind at this moment, ends up having two daughters. Jacob, Isaac's son, goes back, or his servant goes back, and Jacob goes and, and looks for a wife, and he falls in love with Rachel. Rachel's not the firstborn. I'm getting way ahead of myself multiple weeks in advance now. Uh, he, he works for seven years for Rachel, and on his wedding night, um, don't ask me why he didn't notice this, but on his wedding night, he gets Leah instead of Rachel. Surprise! And so begins the self-destructive path that we see in the broken relationships in Genesis that were foisted upon both Rachel and Leah, and Rachel and her conniving that goes along the path. But we'll see a lot of hurt and a lot of distrust, but a lot of God's providence in that. But here in the text, we then find that the seed requires both the seed being a male requires what? Surprise, a female. Eve was promised that she would produce the seed. The New Testament tells us how important and vital your role, ladies, is to be. That childbearing and that uh, beautiful, difficult, crazy challenge that only God do does who controls the womb, right? And the struggle, because what have we learned here? The women in, the, in this Genesis account have struggled with conception. It is hard, it's suffering, it's difficult. It requires faith, but God created you for his glory, ladies, and he's blessed you with the ability to carry the seed, God's special messenger, as it were. And here, the context of this text showcases that God's providence is bookended. And when we see God's providence bookended, it helps us to understand that genuine faith stands on God's providence, even when death brings temporal finality. See, we need to be reminded. We live in a generation that, that tries to redefine maleness and femaleness, or masculinity and femininity, doesn't it? It tries to denigrate both and remove them, right? The components. I don't know if you make a habit of watching the news or the television. You probably don't. You, you, you know, to stay sane, you probably don't. But the last couple of years, it's been a bit laughable to watch female senators not being able to define what a female is. Have you seen, you're like, how far have we gone that we cannot define clearly through human genome, X and Y chromosome that cannot be changed no matter what we do, the clarity that God provided in male and female. And yet, the world will try to press us into its mold and say, look, 
You, ladies, you need to break the shackles of God's created purpose for you. You, men, you need to push against God's created purpose for you. No, you and I must own God's created purpose for us. Now, that does not excuse misogynistic persecution or or evil and vindictive wickedness of male dominance and the disgusting way and perverted way that men have treated women over the eons. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. God never intended that kind of relationship between male and female. He created them to be equal, joint heirs together of the grace of life. And men, though we are you know, stated as the head in Scripture, it does not mean that we are to mistreat or misrepresent God's triune relationship in, in the Trinity. All three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are co-equals. They are equally God. And thus we are equals, male and female, with different relationship and different responsibility. No man can ever be a mother. I don't care what genetics tell you or what the transgender agenda says. Men cannot be moms. It's physically impossible. We don't have a womb, right? And so as we look at the context here, this providential promise to Abraham requires a male and a female. And God, in his mercy, intertwines this family, a three-branched family that narrows down to a singular branch again. I know that sounds really creepy and weird to us. Okay, remember the, the human genome was not as polluted at this point in time. There comes a point in Genesis actually in the Pentateuch where we will find in Deuteronomy a command to God's people not to intermarry, right? Not to marry close relatives. Um, Obviously, the human genome has degraded to our modern day present problems. We have uh, mongoloid issues. We have all kinds of genetic deformities when we have close family connections and close family marriages. Here in the Old Testament, um, God was providing a singular seed through the Toledoth. These are the gene- genealogies of Terah. Now, that is why Genesis says Terah, and then we don't hear anything about Abraham's dad, because Terah would produce Abraham and Nahor. Abraham will produce Isaac and Jacob. Nahor will produce Rebekah, uh, Rachel, and Leah. Are you tracking with me? Both of them are essential. Both of them are important. Though the story has spent a lot of time on the paternal side of things, ladies, there's going to be a lot of discussion on the maternal things coming up and the interpersonal relationship challenges that are found when sin gets in the way. And there's a lot of sin that gets in the way in chapters 25 through 50 of Genesis. And a lot of it has to do with female-on-female interaction, um, really bad leadership decisions on the man's part, okay? And we'll get into some of that. Now, Abraham is informed of his brother's impressive lineage, as we see here in chapter 22, verse 20. Um, uh, He's mentioned Milcah as also a mother, so must have Sarah in mind. The point is that the Terah family, despite its slow beginning, shows a number of descendants. And set against the genealogy of Milcah, the birth of Sarah's child, Isaac, is a unique and divine work of grace. Milcah seems to have no trouble, right? She has eight sons, no biggie. Sarah has one, and she struggles, doesn't she, ladies? 
she struggles 62 years of marriage and uh, you know 37 years into it or 37 years before the end all of a sudden now at the 62 year mark she gets pregnant can you imagine praying for 62 years for a baby I don't know about you but that seems pretty excessive to me at 90 she had a, a baby okay so this is the work of divine grace in her life. And so the Israelites, um, so although not stated specifically, the tenor of the patriarchal accounts implies that God too is overseeing this burgeoning house of Nahor with its 12 members. The Israelites can look back at two direct lines from Terah that produced their 12 tribal ancestors. The Abraham line provided the paternal ancestry, Isaac and Jacob, and the Nahor line provided the maternal ancestry, Rebekah, Leah, and Rachel. Now, notice, um, in, in, I'm going to get into this here in a little bit more detail in just a moment. The narrator, God provides, or proves in the narrative story, uh, telling uh, that the end of Abraham's life culminates in his providential fulfillment of his promises. As uh, the commentator that I just referenced earlier, Matthew's notes above, Abraham would soon be the father of 12 tribes. Okay? Um, and so I'm, I'm going to pause here for a second. I want to show you a map. In chapter 23, where does this field get purchased? Notice it meant, it's mentioned twice in the text. Go ahead and look for a moment. I'm going to give you a, a silent moment. You're going to see it in verse 2, and you're going to see it in chapter 23 again in verse 19. As is appropriate, the narrator bookends his comment by highlighting something very important. Where is this cave of Machpelah, of the uh, Hittites, Ephron? Where does Ephron own this land, and where is it located? Hebron. Okay? By the way, you want to know where Hebron is today? Here's Jerusalem. Okay? Hebron is here, down here. This is about a 30-mile difference. See that? Jerusalem, Hebron. Um, it's a 30-mile drive because of winding roads. As the crow flies, it's about 19 miles, apparently, from the outer border of Jerusalem to the outer border of modern Hebron. Now, notice where this is. This is a modern map, by the way. This is the border, northern border of Israel with Lebanon, Syria, Sea of Galilee, all the way down to the delta here, up to the point, the Gaza Strip, where the rockets have been fired directly into Israel. And then there's this West Bank thing. Do you know who claims Hebron as their property? Palestinians. They claim it as their right or inheritance. But who is the seed of promise? Abraham, who is his seed of promise? Not Ishmael? Are you sure? Are you positive? Absolutely fruitly? So why on earth is this considered Palestinian territory? When this was purchased by Abraham to bury his beloved wife, where Abraham was buried, where Sarah was buried, where Isaac was buried, where Jacob was buried, where Joseph was buried. You see, Abraham bought and owned the one and only place 
that is now being disputed as not belonging to Israel. Who is Abraham the father of? The nation of Israel. Now, I, I, I don't want you to get too lost in the weeds here, but this is, this is one, of, one of the problems that um, the national state of Israel has to, to this day is their blindness to the real promise that God provided. What are they focused on and fixated on? I wish I could blow up this map. I, I didn't provide a map for the guys to blow it up, but they were promised, and you can't, they were promised from the Nile Delta, which actually comes all the way over here. The Nile Delta would be all the way over here on the map if you extend this out to the Nile. So what country does that consume? Part of Northeast Egypt. All the way, if I could follow this map at an angle, pretend this doesn't exist, way over here to Babylon and the Euphrates River. Big, giant triangle. Big, massive. I mean, this is just a little sliver. God promised Abraham from the Nile Delta over here all the way over to here, the river Euphrates in Babylon. Big, giant triangle. And guess what Israel's fixated on? Their land promise. They're so fixated on their land promise that they missed their spiritual delivery promise. I will bless all the nations of the earth through your seed. And we know that seed to have come eventually from Isaac to Jacob, through Judah, through David, from David, through Solomon, from Solomon to Jesus, Yeshua the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. And what was he sent to do? To save his people from their sins, not just to give them a land. Now, do we stand with Israel? I hope we do. I hope we stand with Israel and we, we know that God is blessing the nation that blesses Israel. But this, this land promise will not be a success until after the king of kings plants his feet on the Mount of Olives and divides it in two and creates a new valley in that area and claims that land promise for his own. Now the borders of Israel will, will reach the zenith of God's promise to Abraham at that point in time. But here the text showcases for us something principled. Hey, thank you, Ethan. Good job. See, he's listening well. This is literally what we're talking about. Israel is here, right here, this little teeny sliver Little sliver. All of this is the essential promise. All of that was God's promise. Give or take a few, you know, hundred miles of the Arabian desert there. I don't know exactly what it'll look like. But that essentially is what God promised Abraham. God promised to give him all of that land. This is what it's disputed about today. Now, with that being said, let's move on back to my application here in this first main point, and that is this. The narrator, God, proves in the narrative story telling that the end of Abraham's life culminates in his providential fulfillment of the promises. But he's not fulfilling the land promise per se. As Matthew's noted above, as I mentioned, Abram's brother Nahor would have 12 descendants. The seeds of God's promised blessing to Abraham are already being realized in chapters 22, 20 to 24, and are highlighted in the ending genealogy. Okay, we've already mentioned this. So God always fulfills his promises, even during in the midst of the sorrow and bereavement that the temporal finality of death brings. 
Christian, let me ask you this question. Are you letting the sorrow, not sorry, sorry, typo, you letting the sorrow of loss or death distract you from a firm stance in your faith in God's providence and promises? So Abraham here in chapter 23, I want you to notice a couple things before I move on to the second point. Um, in fact, well, no, let's just move to the second point. Before we do, have you given up the fight for souls in way of application? Are you simply alive but not living for God? Abraham, our father of faith, didn't quit when the going got tough. And neither should you. Perhaps you're at a moment of life that's hard. Maybe you have lost a loved one or a spouse or a good friend. Maybe you've been stuck in the circle of despair or distraction. Maybe your spouse is living, but there's been a, a, an irreconcilable rift and a broken relationship, and the, the wounds and the pain of that is hard, and you're wondering, where is God in the midst of my sorrow and suffering? Abraham had those same questions, but he stood in the solidarity of his faith and said, I believe God. I believe God's promise of deliverance. I believe God's promise of provision. And I'm going to trust in God's providence. And here we find in chapter 23, in verse 3, then Abraham stood up before his dead. There was a time of grieving. There was a time of weeping. There was a time of mourning. In fact, the words here, uh, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah, in the Hebrew is much more intense than just those little words in English. This was a man who lamented, sorrowed. He was crushed of heart and soul. His wife of a hundred years was gone. And there wasn't, there was, there's no doubt in my mind that a, not, a day went by after her, her loss. We see 48 years he lived without her. Not a day went by, no doubt, that he missed his, his princess, his Sarah. But he did not let that stop him from trusting in God's providence and being useful as God's servant. You see, that is this first application. Now let's take a look at the final way this truth is highlighted. It is through God's providence enacted. So Abraham had to make a willful choice. God's providence is enacted here by Abraham's willful choice. So again, verse three, then Abraham stood up from before his dead and he spoke to the sons of Heth saying, you go on um, to, to, to note the text includes multiple times that Abraham stood starting in verse three and moving through the story. While it is true that God's providence moves throughout human history unhindered by our actions, it is also true that God wants us to actively participate in it. Abraham had a decision to make. You and I have a decision to make when we're faced with life's difficulties, when we're faced with interruptions, quote unquote, to our plan. Will we decide to obey God? Will we believe God and it be accredited to us, imputed to us, as it were, of God's righteousness? See, the real question for us today is, will you take your stand and act upon what you know to be God's providential promises? And so... God has a special plan from our, for our lives. Abraham's decision, would he wallow in sorrow after the death of his beloved princess? Would he step off the scene and fade into the shadows, leaving his son to lead on without his weighty influence? He was faced with a choice. Will he believe God once again, and even in the midst of such sorrow, solidifying his faith and the faith of generations to come? Well, we know the end of Abraham's story. We know the, the answer to those questions. 
The real question then is for us today. Will you take your stand and act upon what you know to be God's providential promises? Will you step up for God? You see, like Abraham, the father of our faith, we too have precious promises. We, like Abraham, look for a city whose builder and maker is the Lord. We, like Abraham, are faced with death and despair and sorrow all around us. Live long enough and you'll lose somebody close to you. Multiple somebodies. And yet, like Abraham, we must recognize that there's nothing on this planet, on planet Earth, that is temporal and temporary more important than the eternal that God has prepared for us. Paul would put it this way, I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it even entered the, the, the imagination of the thoughts of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. You see, Jesus would come on the scene as the fulfillment of God's promise. He would crush the serpent's head. His heel would be bruised. Yes, he would take on flesh, the human instrument. He would live a perfect sinless life to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law because the law was our schoolmaster. It was our educator. It was our tutor that would point us to a need for a perfect savior, a perfect sovereign, a perfect substitute who is the one and only one who could accomplish the righteous purpose of God because all of us are sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There are none who are righteous, not even one. All of us have gone out of our way. We're all together unholy, unrighteous. So God would have to lay on him, Messiah, Jesus, the iniquities of us all. God would take the wrath of that was deserved and worthy of all sinners of all time, that's all of us, and he would pour it out on the substitute, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who by himself took his own blood into the heavenlies and, and sprinkled that altar, signifying his once and for all finishing of the work of God for your atonement and mine. You see, friends, we have precious promises. We have a future that is beyond this earth, beyond this pale, beyond this world, a future that is eternal. And when your loved one is taken from you suddenly, incidentally, accidentally, when death comes, we can remember if they knew Jesus Christ as Savior, if they died in Christ, they will rise again to be like him. Death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Because the sting of death is sin. But Jesus Christ conquered sin for all sinners so that whosoever will may come and drink of the water of life freely. Whosoever will may come and taste of the bread of life that was once broken for them. Whosoever will may come and be bathed in the sacrificial blood of the Lamb of God who, who, that was shed for us once for all. You see, friends, we have an incredible mission. There's only one thing we can take with us beyond our eternal soul when we leave this earth. That's another eternal soul. So what are you doing about that? What am I doing about that? Am I letting the despair 
of, of death, of sorrow, of circumstantial difficulty keep me from being God's ambassador for Christ's sake? Being God's witness, being a disciple maker for all the nations, owning my responsibility to showcase the love of God in me by loving others like God does? Oh, friends, Abraham stood up from his grief. He stood up and said, I will not wallow. I will not stop. I will believe God. He only wanted to buy a, a cave. He gets sort of schnookered into buying an entire field, and he pays an exorbitant price. It's about six pounds of silver. A shekel at this point was actual weight and not a coin. Later it would be a, a coin. But he, he pays a, an outlandish price for this land, but he does so in the hearing of everybody uh, at the gate, and everybody knows this now belongs to Abraham. And he was, in essence, claiming the promise that was yet to be fulfilled. This land is God's land. This is where I will reside. This is where God will bless me, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed here. You know, friend, God's got a heavenly home for you. God's got a place in his heavenly room, a room in his heavenly house. God's got a place in his new Jerusalem where there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more cancer, right? No more death. God will wipe away all the tears himself. What a joy. What's keeping us from proclaiming that love and truth? What's keeping us from being on mission for him? So in conclusion today, we asked and answered the question, how does the text reveal that the temporal finality of physical death should give way to firm faith in God's providence? We noted that we can stand firm in our faith in the midst of temporal finality of physical death. Abraham stood up. Abraham obeyed God. He claimed a spot, bought a grave, and ironically, it was the full grave, the grave full of the bones of his people that declared his presence and promise that he'd received from God. But today, my friends, it is the empty grave of God's Son that declares our promise of eternal life and eternal hope and eternal blessing. There's no bones of Jesus because my Jesus is resurrected. My Jesus is the risen Savior, and he is alive today. He's alive in my heart He's alive in yours, and he's got a plan for your future. And don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't grow weary in, in doing good. You will reap in due season if you do not faint. Claim the promises of God. Stand in the midst of God's grace. I'd like to quote, uh, as, uh, I'd like to quote a, oh, I guess I wouldn't like to quote it yet. This truth was highlighted in the text with God's providence bookended. Then again, through God's providence enacted. These are our main points. As with so many heroes of the faith who've gone before us, we have a choice to make today. Will we trust in God's providence to see us through our darkest times of fear, worry, and doubt? Will we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us? What is our hope in life and death? This is the hymn we're going to sing. I want to close with this poem. And we're going to close at a moment singing this very hymn. What is our hope in life and death? 
the poetic psalm or hymn writer says, Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. Who holds our days within his hands? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? To the love of Christ in which we stand. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There, will, there we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess. Christ, our hope in life and death. Oh, now and ever we confess. Christ, our hope in life and death. Oh, friends, genuine faith stands on God's providence even when death brings temporal finality. Are you willing to stand on Christ alone? Is your hope in Christ are you so living for this world that you've lost your focus today? May God help us to sing hallelujah, Christ alone.